there's an old joke that um, just imagine it taking place in uh, a delicatessen or a cafeteria somewhere in the outer boroughs of New York City. Some of you probably know this joke already. Old man has ordered soup. Calls the waiter back. Taste this soup. Waiter looks at him. Did you not get the right soup that you ordered, sir? Taste this soup. Is it too hot? Is it too cold? What's wrong? What can I help you with? Taste this soup. Waiter's getting really, really frustrated right now. It's not my policy. It's not what we do. We don't taste the soup of our patrons. Taste this soup. Finally, the waiter knows the only way he's going to get past this is to taste the soup. So he leans in. He says, where's the spoon? Aha. (laughs) It's a classic. The entire meaning and method of the movie Funny People is contained in that one classic joke. It is a very simple joke, but if you really think about it, it is all about indirect communication. I mean, why couldn't the old man just ask for a spoon? (laughs) No, he had to go about it in a very roundabout fashion. He's not able to speak about a very legitimate need in a very legitimate context. That moment of aha... It's almost kind of like a little bit of nonviolent revenge, something hostile to it almost, like now you get to see, waiter man, how disempowered I am sitting here without a spoon, and you get to experience what I get to experience. Years ago, a couple years before actually myself, I was bar mitzvahed in the Jewish tradition which I grew up, I came upon a book that my family had called The Big Book of Jewish Humor. If you know it, it's wonderful. It's still in print. And when you actually paid, page through the big book of Jewish humor, you see how much of that humor has to do with the Germans, the Russians, the czars, the pogroms. And you see this narrative emerging of humor in the light of the many, many tragedies of the Jewish people. It's almost as if comedy has become, for my sort of former, but still in some ways current tribe, comedy has become a form of compensation for tragedy. That there is the funny to deal with the ongoing frustrations. Now the people, the characters in funny people suffer no such tragedies as we hear about over and over and over again in the form of comedy in something like the big book of Jewish humor. But you can still hear the echoes in this movie of those hurts that are turned into humor, of those hostilities masquerading as comedy. This movie is really all about how comedy often begins in sadness. I mean, think about it. If any of you are teachers or any of you might have been, or perhaps some of you have children who are the class clowns. Very often it comes down to what makes a class clown is that it is better to get negative attention than to be afraid of having no attention at all. The movie is about a guy named George Simmons who's played by Adam Sandler, and he is a very isolated, very rich, very powerful comedian, much like Adam Sandler, we imagine. Now, like many Adam Sandler characters, George Simmons, he sits on a mountain of hostility and anger. I don't really like Adam Sandler movies all that much. A few are very funny. But an Adam Sandler movie will have this at some point. 
him exploding red-faced when someone has got in his way one too many times. Now, in the movie, what happens is George Simmons finds out that he has a very, very rare form of leukemia. He is put on an experimental treatment that gives him just under a 10% chance of survival. And this is the first time you get the sense that George has ever dealt with anything truly real, really had to deal with one of the inescapable parts of life, one of the things he can't just joke his way around or completely deny. And so with nowhere else to go, he lives in this huge house in Malibu out by the ocean all by himself. The only people that he sees day after day are the people who tend his house. With no place else to go, he goes to the place that is the closest approximation of home for him. He goes back to where he started, which are the comedy clubs of Los Angeles. And this brings him into the orbit of a bunch of young comics, male and female, but mostly male, and particularly one named Ira, who's played by the actor Seth Rogen. Now, Ira becomes George's lackey, his gopher, his punching bag, his protege, and at times, just at times, we get little snippets that maybe there's a real friendship there. Funny People is what I like to call a halfway redemption story. At times, it approaches real tragedy. At times, it is truly moving, but it's only halfway. It's not going to go all the way there. And in many ways, Funny People is not nearly as popular as Judd Apatow's two previous movies, Knocked Up and 40-Year-Old Virgin. And I particularly loved 40-Year-Old Virgin. Both those movies, the previous movies, were about a certain kind of narrative arc, a certain story arc. They are about immature men finally growing up, but something very different is at play here. It is about an immature man facing death before he might ever get the chance to grow up. Now, the movie is sometimes absolutely hysterical. There is a cameo in it by the rapper Eminem, this unbelievably dirty rant about fame and isolation and paranoia that is absolutely fantastic. It's worth the price of admission itself. However, do you want to say this? It is, as they would say in the Yiddish, with which I sometimes very rarely grew up, nisht for kinder. <laughs> not for kids. And if you are easily offended, do not see it. I warned you, you go and see it. My minister preached on it. It must be okay for me to see. And if you walk out saying, ugh, I, I warned you, okay? If you're easily offended, don't see it. There are more jokes just to give you a little sense here, and this is really make it a PG version of the constant theme in this movie. There are more jokes in this movie about male genitalia per square inch of celluloid than any other movie I have ever seen in my life. It's constant. But the thing is, these are not boasts about male sexual prowess. Most often, these jokes are self-deprecating. There is a sense of hostility aimed towards... Not just the male self, but the most vulnerable part of what it means to be a man. And this movie airs the open secrets that many, I don't want to say most, but many funny people are not happy people. It is a movie about sad clowns. The laughing on the outside, but very often the crying, or even more appropriately, the raging on the inside kinds of clowns. And oftentimes, at least in the characters we see in the movie, the reason that they are so sad or angry or resentful is because they are too immature to know what might really make them happy. This is the theme that runs throughout the entire movie when George is first quizzing Ira, trying to see if he's got the chops to write maybe some jokes for George. He's asking him, why did you become a comedian? Why did you become a comedian? He doesn't want the answer. 
doesn't want the answer. He doesn't even give Ira a chance to answer. He said, you became a comedian because you got humiliated on the first day of school, right? That's why you became a comedian. The suspicion we have about Ira all throughout the movie, right up until the end, is that maybe he might be too decent and too self-aware. George is neither. Ira might be too decent a person to be a successful comic. He lacks that killer instinct, that desire to go right for the jugular when you see another person's vulnerability that sometimes makes comedy so effective but also so cruel. There's the comic boast that we hear very often in the backstage of those comedy clubs in which so much of the movie is centered. You know the phrase, I killed out there. That's not just metaphorical. For a lot of these comedians and a lot of what it means to be a comic, the audience is to be conquered because the world is an unsafe place. I killed out there. The next line could be before they killed me. It's my opportunity to make sure that I'm going to be all right. And you see this all throughout. Ira has these roommates, and they're all ultra-competitive with each other. They're all one-upping each other. One of them has become a moderate success on a show that probably would run on the CW at 10 o'clock on Saturday mornings for, like, tweens. It's called Yo Teach. It's absolutely awful. But what he does is he puts his residual checks on the pillowcases of the less successful people that he leaves with, lives with. Oh, did I leave that there? Oh, it's just another $25,000 check. What am I going to do? And you see how they are just really trying to nail each other all the time. This is a world in which humor comes regularly from humiliation. And perhaps you know this in your own life, whether it was humor or whether it was something else, a defense mechanism that you used or might have used or perhaps continue still to use to make the world seem safer for you when it appeared too threatening. The problem, as we see in this movie, is that too often defense mechanisms become real barriers to authentic relationship with another person. It's really how all addictions become, how all attachments start. What starts out with you wanting to guarantee your place and your security, and maybe having you think that through that security you can get to know other people, ultimately becomes something that cuts you off entirely from true authentic human presence. Now when humor is found in humiliation and comes from you being humiliated, very often instead of that humor being dealt with, it is turned outward. And so those who are humiliated, especially comedians, start to learn to humiliate and hurt others. The song we just heard, Keep Me In Your Heart For A While, is the moment of the first sort of real emotional resonance in the movie. And Ira has made he doesn't know the storm that he's walking into. He has made a very moving, wonderful gift for George. It's a collection of songs. He's created a whole playlist in his iTunes about death, about dealing with death, about trying to connect. The first song George dismisses. The second one, he says something really nasty about his sexual orientation. But the third one is keep me in your heart for a while. And you can see for the first time that George's Adam Sandler's face changes for just for about 10 seconds. And you can see how uncomfortable he is that he has to deal with something real. And he lashes out furiously because he cannot deal. He cannot understand those deeper emotions, the hurt, the vulnerability of what it is to be sick and to be perhaps facing your own mortality. And so he lashes out at the source of the person who presented these issues to him 
in song. What we realize about George is that he is a perpetual outsider. And if you think about many of our best comedians are perpetual outsiders and our world needs some perpetual outsiders to help shed some light on the silliness of those of us who might exist at the center of things. But the problem with that, the problem with that is that to remain a perpetual outsider means that we can never make real connections with others. I have to tell you, this movie made me really understand for the first time why Dave Chappelle did what he did. Remember Dave Chappelle? He was on the cusp of blowing up huge. He already was the biggest star, maybe next to Jon Stewart on Comedy Central. He was about to sign a contract that would bring him tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars, and he walked away. At first, people assumed the worst. Drug addicts, he went insane. You know what he did? He went and he converted to a traditional version of Islam and hung out with friends in South Africa. He, to use the 60s parlance, found himself. He decided, Dave Chappelle decided, that it was more important to find himself than it was more important for him to be funny. He said, no longer implicitly do I want to be one of those people on the outside even of my own life. I want to get on the inside of this thing. Finally, he chose his soul over his role. Now, George does nothing like this in the movie, Adam Sandler's character. But he makes, eh, a little, little progress. And so he goes back and he tries to make amends with the one woman in his life that he has ever truly loved. And, of course, he wasn't faithful to her either. He's never been faithful to anyone. Now, the movie at this point, I don't want to get into it, becomes really, really contrived. They've got to move the plot forward, so all kinds of certain stupid things happen among the three characters, and it all falls apart, and it's got to all fall apart, because if it didn't all fall apart, then we'd have to learn too much about the characters, which means they'd have to learn a lot about themselves, and it would really stop being a comedy, and it was already two hours and 40 minutes, and it would become three and a half hours, and it would be even a less successful box office draw than it is right now. So anyway, I forgive it the fact that it became contrived. But I think this represents a deeper ambivalence on the part of the filmmaker, Judd Apatow. I think he's clearly ambivalent about whether he really wants George to get better physically. Because if he gets better physically, maybe he will not just get better in body, which ultimately he does, but he might actually get better morally and spiritually. And I don't know if Judd Apatow knows how to write that and make it interesting yet. Maybe he will. I think the sneaking suspicion that he has about his characters is that they may not be funny anymore if they change too much. George is not capable of really, truly deep, authentic change. Because any change beyond just the cosmetic or the superficial level, we all know, is very, very hard. New life, like birth, has labor pains and it has growing pains. It means discomfort. It means leaving behind those old defaults and those all fallbacks. It means subbing out the one-liners, the snappy one-liners, for the more open-ended question and giving another person the opportunity to respond to our questions and perhaps admit that they may know something more than we do. George's most famous character in the movie is a really, really stupid comedy, but it's earned him hundreds of millions of dollars and really isn't all that different for the hundreds of millions of dollars that... Adam Sandler has earned in real life. It's called Redo. And it features the adult head of Adam Sandler transposed onto the body of a baby. That's the entire movie. He gets to redo his life. His other most famous one is Merman, which you can figure out. He's a mermaid who's a man. 
It's Adam Sandler kinds of comedies. I mean, actually, I like that part of the movie. They're sort of, you know, poking a sharp stick at some of the stupid stuff that comes out of Hollywood. But there's a deeper insight in this particular movie, in Redo. Because real change, if you ever have walked through a time in your life of real change, it can feel like a second infancy. Think about why babies cry. Think about why babies cry so regularly. It's because their needs are so great, but their know-how is so small. They have needs how they, who they don't know if they can meet yet. Their know-how cannot establish and give them what they need. And so they cry out. Sometimes real change is like that. It can feel helpless. Real change is about getting in touch with that part of ourselves that is authentic and primordial and original. It is the genuine article. It is, as some traditions call it, about the process of beginner's mind. And I encourage all of us in so many ways, whether it's real, deep, authentic change or whether it's waking up every morning just with the time of spiritual practice, you can enter the day with beginner's mind because there's a way of experiencing this creation as a fresh thing. But the one thing that isn't talked about very often in beginner's mind is that it's also very, very disorienting. Because if you're going to be a beginner again, that means you have to remain teachable. That means you have to become an I don't know it all. That means you have to say, I don't know how I want to do, how to do what I want to do yet. So this kind of change is really messy. It isn't efficient. And it takes time. And perhaps if you've ever been up to the cusp of one of these moments of change in your life and you pulled back well that's just what you've done it's all right it's your life but one of the things that the movie makes clear is that we may think the price of change is too costly to pay but when we take a look at a character like george we recognize that not paying that cost of real change when real change calls us is an even deeper and more painful cost that we will need to pay. And so George in the movie doesn't really put it all into work. And there's a little bit of a dodge towards the end of the movie that the most honestly emotional phrase in the entire film is uttered by a guy who we have been set up to think in the movie is an absolute idiot. But he's summing up this little love triangle that he's involved in, and he's about to punch George in the nose, and actually, he does punch George in the nose, and then he holds off, and he recognizes how angry he's becoming. And he says, underneath the anger, there is pain. But underneath the pain, there is love. But it takes time to get through those stages. It is very easy to stay at the level of simply being angry, because it feels good, and we can feel justified, and the enemy is out there rather than in here. It takes time to go through those layers. At the end of the movie, there's a very ambiguous resolution, which in many ways I did appreciate, ultimately. It says that George is not going to fall back in love with the one that got away. And it also hints that perhaps humor is not just about hurt and not just about hurting others, but that humor is also a way that we can heal. This really brought home to me something that I've been reading online over the last two and a half, almost three months. A friend of mine and the man that she married 
she comes from a family in which uh, cystic fibrosis runs through a number of different generations, and it's killed off some of her ancestors. She took all the genetic tests that she was supposed to take before she and her husband were going to have a baby. They did everything they were supposed to. And then that baby was born two and a half months premature and with cystic fibrosis. Spent the first two months of his life, little Charlie, little baby Charlie did, in the neonatal ICU, really wondering whether he was going to survive surgery after surgery, after pancreatic enzyme test, after pancreatic enzyme test. And because Karen and Tom are such wonderful friends and known by so many people, they also recognized that they couldn't get in touch with every single person directly who wanted to be in touch with them. So they set up um, one of these websites, CaringBridge. Have you ever seen it? It's a wonderful thing. If you or someone you love has ever gotten sick, it's a great way to communicate with the outside world and also have people leave you messages but not have to be responsible for each individual message that comes in. And Karen and Tom are both wonderful writers, both teachers and professors of English. And so they started writing little missives, not just in the voice of Karen and Tom, but in the voice of little baby Charlie. Little baby Charlie was the biggest player in the NICU. He was the one that all the nurses wanted to be around. He was the one who would have to grow up 15, 20 years from now and recognize that he was not going to be the center of every woman's life. He was going to be the one who was going to start modeling for Calvin Klein the dapper diaper line that they were about to start putting out there. What Karen and Tom did was use humor to help deal with an absolutely awful situation. Reminded me some years ago when I was doing hospital chaplaincy in the summer of 1996, and they really just throw you in there and they see whether you sink or swim. And I was doing hospital chaplaincy, and I was about five, six weeks into it, and I had started to gain a real sense of comfort in working with people who sometimes were dreadfully very, very sick. And I, at one point, I was praying with a man who had very, very advanced AIDS. I think he died less than a week after I was with him. And we were praying together on my hand on his shoulder. And what became apparent was that right in the middle of our prayer, he had lost complete control of his bowels. I mean, I actually sort of opened my eyes and I could see the mess extending out over the bed. And I could <laughs> smell the stench. And at first I was just instinctually revolted. <laughs> and then I was scared. And then ultimately I knew I had to stay and wanted to stay by the bed with this child of God who was suffering and had watched his own body abandon him. As so we stayed and we finished the prayer, and I didn't lose connection with him. I mean, I, want, <laughs> I wanted to pull that arm away because I was frightened. And as we finished our prayer and said amen, and I went to go get the nurse so he could start to be cleaned up, he said, and I always remember these words, God damn, it stinks in here. And that was wonderful because it gave us something to laugh about. And we both laughed together. That laughter broke the silence and was healing. 
At the end of that summer session of clinical pastoral education, that chaplaincy, the chaplains in my group, for a larger group of chaplains, we did a series of songs and skits. And to the tune of the 12 days of Christmas, we wrote a song based on all the crazy crap that we had witnessed over that summer. I don't remember all of it. I wished I had written it down. But, you know, in the 12 days of Christmas, da, 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 da. and I remembered it ended with three ripped out IVs, two sucking chest wounds, and an overturned bedpan filled with pee. <laughs> I'm not making that up. <laughs> now, of course, we were doing that for other chaplains. We would never do that in the midst of someone who was a patient. And we were not making fun of those people. Humor, ultimately, when it heals, is necessary for our sanity. Especially if you're a medical professional or have been around a lot of disease and death and recognize all the ways that the human body can really go wrong and, frankly, get really, really gross. Humor can be necessary so that we're able to stay with people, not pull away or run away in fear. This kind of humor is not denial, but it is an affirmation that all the air has not gone out of life, even if life is difficult. How often we might say, and perhaps you've heard yourself say it, and you say it with a shrug of the shoulders or a sigh, someday, someday we might look back on this and laugh. Someday we might look back on this and laugh. I want to tell you, I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Next time you're in one of those circumstances in which you feel yourself just sagging and saying, someday we might look back on this and laugh, try saying to yourself instead, I'm going to laugh about this right now. So someday I can look back on this and understand it. Someday I can look back on this and say that even then, the air did not go out of my life. Humor, when it is healing, makes the scary stuff just a little bit more safe. We recognize that we can deal with it. We recognize that the scary stuff, as much as it wants us to pull back from life entirely, we can still be there. Laughter and humor can give us the permission to talk about it to re-enter it, to connect with it. And when we can say we can laugh about this now so that we might be able to tell it and speak it later, what we're doing is talking about the healing power of, of telling stories. My favorite comedians are actually not joke tellers. They are storytellers. And the jokes are just woven in to the stories that they tell. What they're saying is the humor is just a part of it. The humor is just a part of living. Milan Kundera, some of you know, wrote the ungrateful, uh, uh, excuse me, unbearable lightness of being. It's a great quote. He said that people first started writing novels to echo God's laughter. What a wonderful phrase. People first started writing novels to echo God's laughter. Too often in the West, we hear about God's wrath or God's mercy or God's anger. Not so much about God's laughter. Now, these are all anthropomorphic phrases anyway. But what we're saying when we say them is that there is some original part of the universe that is wrathful or angry or merciful. 
But to also say that there is some part of the universe that is bidding us to laugh. Bidding us to burst forth. Think about when you laugh so much that your sides hurt, that you can't breathe. Think about what has come before that. When you truly, deeply laugh, when we truly, deeply find something funny, and very often it's in the company of other people, because laughter is like a wonderful virus, like a sneeze it catches. I find when I'm in the company of some of my closest friends, I laugh, they laugh, we laugh, it comes back around to me. Laughter gets into some of those deepest parts of the lungs, those deepest parts of the souls. And we can be reminded that not just is life unbearably heavy at times, life is also unbearably light. Laughter, when it is truly healing, gets the air back into our souls. And so I'd encourage you today, find something funny. Heal your life and let yourself go. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. To be lifted up and to enter that place of that divine laughter. May that be our aspiration this day. To know that in our laughter is an affirmation. To know that when that laughter comes from not the place of cruelty or hurts, but connection, that we remind ourselves again that in spite of all that is difficult, all that might seem unbearable, unknowable, undoable in this life, laughter is our voice before our voice finds the words. Laughter is our speech before there are any consonants or vowels. Laughter can be the language of our spirits, giving rise and going out, and in that laughter, allowing life to be drawn back into and toward us once again. Amen.